0: When Jesus was on earth, he taught us how to pray. He, he gave us a prayer and part of it is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So thinking about the will of God, we're actually going to be talking about that in this series and it doesn't sound great, but it's for us to be losers. And the point of that is in the gospels, Jesus talks about ways that we can gain from loss or that if we lay down our life, that we're actually given new life. So as we look at Philippians, which is where we're at for joyful losers, we're going to be examining some of those different situations, some of the irony that we live in if we follow Jesus. So I'm going to be reading out of Philippians 1, 3 through 11. All of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how long for all of you that I've been in in affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Thanks be to God for his word that always leads us
1: and guides us into what is true. Thanks, Jordan, for reading. Uh, Spoiler alert for you today. Spoiler alert. Are you ready? God wins, right? That's it. God wins. I could leave the stage right now. God wins in every way imaginable. God is victorious over everything and everyone. And I hear the critic right now going, really? Does God win in our schools right now? Is God winning in our communities? Is God winning in our country? Is God winning in Hollywood? Is God winning on YouTube? Is God winning in Wall Street? Is God winning in Washington? Is God winning in Harrisburg? Is God winning in the Supreme Court right now? I hear the critic and I know, is really God's winning? Of course we think that way. But if you watch any sports competition and you look at any specific moment during the game, It could look like someone's winning. It could look like someone's losing. If you fast forward to the end, you know who the clear winner is. And if we fast forward to the end of time, in the end, God wins. In the end, the last man standing will be Jesus Christ. That's categorically true as the supreme, sovereign, just, glorious, loving King. And every knee, the Bible says, will bow to King Jesus. In heaven and on earth and in under the earth, everyone will bow because he's so great, the only one who can stand and will fall before him. And that might seem hard to imagine right now, but spoiler alert, God wins. And this spoiler alert has been brought to you by hope. We need hope Because right now, it doesn't feel like God's winning, does it? I mean, in your personal life, in your corporate life, does it feel like God's winning? Maybe in your health, in your home, does it feel like God's winning? No, it doesn't. It feels more often than not that everything and everyone is losing. And so we're fast-forwarding to the end to go in the end, God wins, Jesus wins. And that gives you and me hope hope right now to keep going. So we're starting this new series called Joyful Loser. We're taking the book of the Bible called Philippians. Paul is the author of Philippians. He's writing a letter to the church in a city called Philippi. 2,000 years ago, the city, Philippi, church there. Paul's like, I'm going to write you a letter. And I was reading this letter a number of months ago. It's a letter. So when you pick up a letter, do you only read a couple lines of a letter or do you read the whole letter? We read the whole letter, right? So I picked up the book of Philippians, the letter, and I probably read it 20 times from beginning to end. Beginning to end. Beginning to end. And here's what began to emerge in my heart. There's this invitation in the book of Philippians to be a joyful loser. And I know that sounds crazy. It sounds so Paradoxical to you and me, but here's what Paul is trying to teach the Philippian church then, and I think the American church today that I can choose to be joyfully lose when I know that God always wins. That I can make a conscious choice to joyfully lose if I have the end in sight, and I know that God always wins. When I lose, I can be joyful about it. And I know what some of you are thinking you're going, hey, listen, I don't lose right? Like you're, you're super competitive. You go, I don't lose. And if I do lose, I don't ever lose. But if I do lose, I'm certainly not going to be joyful about it. I get it because I live with a sore loser. Her name is Karine Hensler, my wife. She's a sore loser, right? I got permission. I asked her if I could tell you this, but my wife is a sore loser. Cause here's what you don't know about me probably is I'm not athletic and not competitive at all. When it comes to sports, the most unathletic and uncompetitive, but I married this woman who is an all-state athlete in basketball and soccer, and she is super athletic and super competitive. And we birthed three teenage sons. Well, they didn't come out as teenagers, but it came out, and all three of them are super athletic and super competitive. So when we go out and play some sort of fun game, like basketball, cornhole in the yard, I'm the one that nobody picks, right? Because I'm like this big, goofy, unathletic, non-competitive person. And so the family's out there playing, and it's basketball or cornhole, and they're about to kill each other. They're trash-talking their mom. It's like, what is going on? There's blood, they're spitting, they're fighting, and I'm going, can we all just chill out? It's only a game. And I'm the odd man out. They're looking at me like, what is wrong with you? And so this thought, this notion of being a joyful loser, I mean, if there's anything further from my wife, that's what's further from her. She is not going to be a joyful loser. And it's not because she's so competitive, she doesn't care about who she's competing against. She's analyzing everything she did in whatever competition she was in and thinking about how she could do it better. And in her mind, she could always do it better and always win. It's like, okay, you're a sore loser. Uh, FYI, lady. Like you're, and so I know, I know what it's like with some of us. We go, I, I don't lose, and I'm certainly not going to be joyful about it. But here's the deal spoiler alert, you are going to lose. If you haven't lost already today, you're going to lose today. And you're going to lose this week, and you're going to lose this month, and you're going to lose this year. And when you lose, what are you going to do? Cry in your milk like a big Christian baby? That's what some of you act like. What are you gonna do when you lose? What are you gonna do? And so Paul writes this letter to remind us of what is most important because in the modern American church, in this church, we don't lose. I mean, how many of you want to lose? Raise your hand. It's like there's a lot of you that are hyper competitive and you go, I don't lose. And if I do lose, I'm not going to be joyful. But if we've put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the one born of a virgin who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified, dead, buried, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father who is going to come to judge the quick and the dead and make all things right and new, if my hope is in him and not in myself that when i lose i still win would you pray with me god would you teach us these truths because all of us struggle with humility all of us struggle with pride we don't want to lose we are strong and smart and capable we're wise and intelligent and successful how can we lose And yet there's an invitation in following you to let go of our sin and shame and let go of our control and trust you because you always win. So would you teach us these truths today and this summer? I pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're in Philippians chapter one. It's in the New Testament, electronic or paper copy, Philippians chapter one. It's helpful for you to know something about Paul, the author of this letter, the one who wrote these words. If there was ever anyone who was ever a joyful loser, it was Paul. If there was ever someone who was a joyful loser, it's Paul. Uh, Paul's like the Elon Musk of his day, the top of the intellectual heap, Ivy League education, hyper-successful, passionate, all things religion and philosophy, Paul's off the chart smart and capable, and he'll do whatever it takes to eliminate any threat to where he wants to go and what he wants to do until Paul meets Jesus. And he bumps into Jesus and his life is changed because he bumps into someone who's smarter, stronger, better than him. And so he sets aside his comfort and his success and his desires to be, be capable in all these other areas, and he starts to follow Jesus, and he starts to travel around the world telling people about this greater, stronger God. It would be like Elon Musk giving up Tesla and SpaceX to go tell everyone about Jesus. You'd go, what's wrong with you? But that's how much Paul was confident that he was going to hook his wagon to the winning horse And whatever it would take, he'd let go of anything and everything to follow this Jesus and to tell everyone about the winning God. And that meant he didn't have a really settled life. It means he never settled down. There are times that he had a lot of food and times when he didn't have a lot of food. Times where he had a lot of success and times where he didn't. Times where he'd go into town and people loved him. Most times he'd go into town and people hate him. He'd go into town and people would try to kill him. He was arrested multiple times and eventually thrown in jail and killed for following Jesus. And this man, Paul, is sitting in a prison cell writing the letter we're going to study and he's the one that says, I can choose to joyfully lose when I know God always wins. And if anybody had the right to say it, it's not like he's spouting off talking about this and he doesn't live it. He lost everything including his life and he was joyful about it. And I know what some of you think. It's easy to be a joyful loser when you're always a loser. I mean, it's kind of like my kids, they're always like, "Dad, it's so easy for you to not be concerned about losing because you always lose." Like, "You're a loser." <laughs> and so it almost think like, "Okay, you know, maybe Paul's writing this letter to a people, these Christians in Philippi who are just perennial losers. They're always going to lose. And he's like, okay, everybody, you're always going to lose. So why don't you be joyful? Ding. Like you think that's what he's doing, but that's not the case. Actually, this city, these group of people are very successful and capable. This place called Philippi is a hub, a winning city. It's very diverse. It's culturally relevant. It's wealthy with agriculture and gold. It's a crossroads of industry. It's a hub, a central place. And if you read Acts chapter 16, go back and look at it this week, you'll see how the church started in this city called Philippi. A couple of God-fearing women, these women that love God, They're at a river praying and talking to God, and here comes Paul. Paul tells them about Jesus. These God-fearing women put their hope in Jesus. Some of them are very prominent leaders in their community. They put their trust in Jesus. It changes their lives forever, and the church of Jesus Christ is born in this city of Philippi. And once Paul establishes the church, gets it kind of going, he moves off to tell other people about Jesus and start other churches. But as the years go by in this city, among these believers in this church, they begin to experience a variety of hardships. One of the main hardships they face is that they're run by Rome, and they were expected when they would go to a community event, when they would go to some kind sort of civic event, they were expected to declare their loyalty to the Roman governor and to call the Roman governor Lord and Savior. It would be like you and me being told today that we have to call our governor and our president Lord and Savior. You see the kind of conflict that would bring to a follower of Jesus who we call Jesus Lord and Savior, now I'm calling my governor or president, there's this conflict, this hardship that starts to emerge in the church of Jesus Christ in Philippi. They're called to conform to Roman culture in such a way that they have to declare their loyalty to Roman culture and not to Jesus. And that starts to bring tension in the church family because some people are like, we should do this. And some people are like, we should do that. And they're fighting amongst themselves. So now they have pressure on the outside and pressure on the inside. And things are difficult and persecution is breaking out. And Paul is in a prison cell and he picks up a pen and writes them this letter and says, I can choose to joyfully lose if I know that God always wins. And as Christians in America today, we're in a similar place. We've experienced so much of God's goodness personally. I hope you have. We've so much God's goodness nationally, and yet things are beginning to change. Last few years, there's greater and greater division, right, in the Church of Jesus Christ among people who say they're followers of Christ. There's division, there's disunity Tons of pressure, what to conform to, what to not conform to. And increasingly, the relationship between the state, the United States of America, and the Church of Jesus Christ, that relationship is strained, pulled apart, where in the past we had a closer relationship. There's always been a separation, but a close relationship between church and state. But now that divide is growing wider. And following Jesus runs up against political and cultural pressure, and where's our loyalty? What are we going to do? And Paul reminded the Christians in Philippi, just like we need this reminder, he says, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're in this time in our lives Time in our country, time as followers of Jesus, where there are ways we're going to lose in our personal life, in our civic life, in our communal life. How are we going to respond? And this book, Philippians, gives us really practical hope and help of how to grow in our love and loyalty to God in the midst of difficulty, to be joyful losers, knowing God always wins. I also know that some of you, when you hear this, go, well, what are we supposed to do then? We're just supposed to roll over? Like, if if we know God wins, and there's ways we're going to lose, do we just lay down and stop fighting, stop living? Do we just go, I give up? Like, I'm going to lose cornhole every time, guys, so I just kind of throw the bag on the ground? Like, no, nowhere in the Bible are we taught to give up and to give in, to not fight, to not live, to not love. We don't need to have a martyr complex, but Paul's writing these words to equip us into how to live when we know God wins, how to live in this world in a way that represents God well and where we can be joyful even when we're losing. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Philippians 1. Paul begins with this very affectionate and encouraging statement. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. He's thinking of this church, this group of people. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He says, I love you guys and I pray for you all the time. And here's why he says to them, here's why you don't just roll over. Yes, God wins in the end, but look what he says in verse 6. He says, God, who began a good work in you, will carry it unto completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean you just roll over. No. There's something here going on. A, A technical phrase worth pointing out. See that phrase, the day of Christ Jesus? What is that? You know how at the end of a football game, the clock stops and the game is over? It's like four 15-minute quarters, right? In soccer, two 45-minute halves. At the end, the clock runs out, the game is over. That same thing is true with our world. That the God of the universe has a clock, a timer. There is a calendar date, a moment, that only God knows where he's going to say the game's over. And Jesus, the last man standing victorious over all things and makes all things new. The Bible calls that the day of the Lord, the day of Jesus Christ. There's a day in time set. Before Paul mentions the day of the Lord, though, he says in verse 6, God who began a good work in you. Before we get to the day of the Lord thing, he says, God who began a good work in you. Did God begin a good work in you? I mean, do you know that God began a good work in you? Have you experienced God's good work in you? You go, I don't know what you mean by that. How did you make it to planet Earth? Are you an accident? You're just some haphazard ball of primordial soup that randomly comes together. You're like a puddle on the ground and then time and space, time and space, time and space. Oh, you're an ape. Time and space, time and space. Now you have glasses and work for, you know, Wawa. Is that all just happened? Like, oh, there it is. Primordial soup becomes worker at Wawa. Like, is that how it goes? Are you an accident? Are you chance? Are you just time and space all mixed together and suddenly you wear glasses and working at Wawa? I don't think so. The God who made the universe made you and breathed life into you. You are no accident. There's nothing random about you. Created in the image of God, you didn't just show up. And whether you were born into a great family or a terrible family, whether you have incredible gifts or no gifts, if you're a person with severe disabilities or a person with severe strengths and everything in between, God started you. He made you. He sustains you and has a purpose for your life. And He didn't just make you physical. You're emotional and mental and you're, by the way, spiritual. Have you ever seen a dead body? Have you ever seen someone who was alive one second and the next moment is dead? What's missing? Oh, it's breath in their lungs. But more than that, there's something spiritual about who we are. A part of us that will never die. Never. God made us spiritual beings to have a relationship with God, that we're emotional, physical, and spiritual beings to be connected to God forever. But God made us to live in relationship with him, to love him and to serve him, but we love ourselves and serve ourselves. And that's what disconnects the spiritual plug. God could say, you're stuck that way, but instead he started something. The day Jesus came to planet earth, God started something. He started this perfection that lives on planet Earth. Jesus comes and he fully loves God and he fully loves people to show us what it's like to live spiritually connected to God. And the day Jesus died on the cross, God started something. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. The punishment of sin was on his shoulders so that he could start a family where sin is paid for and now we could live connected lives to God. The day Jesus rose from the dead, God started something. He started a whole new category of you die, but if your life is in Christ, you live again. The day God rose Jesus from the dead and Jesus ascended back to God the Father, God started something. He sent his spirit to live inside you and me, that when we put our trust in him, he makes us new on the inside. And gives us his spirit to bear fruit in our lives and to have gifts in our lives. To give us the fruit of joy so that no matter what circumstance we face, we can be joyful. So whatever losing we have to face, we know God started something. And whatever God starts, he finishes. Whatever he begins, he carries it unto completion. And we don't have to have confidence. Because I have confidence in what God starts, he will finish I don't have to have confidence in me. I don't have to prove to anyone I'm smart or successful. I don't have to prove to you whether I'm going to be good at cornhole or bad at cornhole. Like I'm bad at cornhole. I don't have to prove to you that I'm going to be good. I don't have to prove to you that I'm smart, successful. I don't have to prove to you that I'm sexy. I don't have to prove to you I'm wealthy or anything. I have nothing to prove to you or to anyone else, because God started something in me that he is going to finish. And my confidence is not in me, but it's in him. He's going to carry it unto completion. So even when I fail in my faith and I'm not a joyful loser and I'm sore loser crying in my milk, "Mm, I'm so sad I lost the cornhole game. Even when I'm like that, I don't have to have confidence in me. I have confidence in God for whatever he starts, he finishes. Paul begins this letter with great affection and this reminder that he's praying for his friends in Philippi. It's kind of cool to think about someone praying for you, right? If you hear that someone prays for you, does that encourage you? Not send up warm signals, like who cares about warm signals? I don't know what warm signals are. Sending fuzzy feelings, who cares? But I'm praying to the God of the universe that hears me and who answers my prayer? Isn't that encouraging when someone prays for you? Paul says, here's what I pray for you, verse 9, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight, so that you're able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and the praise of God. See, here's the thing. I can be a joyful loser, but that doesn't mean I roll over. My confidence is in God. And now I live to glorify God by loving and discerning. He says, here's my prayer for you as you wait for Christ to return. Here's my prayer for you that you would glorify God by loving I pray that your love may abound more and more. I don't pray that your knowledge would abound more and more. Your service would abound more and more. Your purity would abound more and more. No, I pray that your love would abound more and more. Remember somebody walked up to Jesus one day and said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What did Jesus answer? He said, love God and love neighbor. That's the most important stuff. This is Paul's way of saying the same thing. You want to know how to glorify God as you wait for him to return? It's all about love. How many of you have been to weddings where they read 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient, love is kind. Do you know that's a completely inappropriate place to use that text? I mean, it's appropriate, but that's not what it's designed for. It wasn't actually words written for a wedding. It was words written for a church like you and me in this moment, and Paul, in, that, in those words, defines what growing in love looks like. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or in angels, but I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not love, I'm nothing. He's saying, if I'm successful, strong, capable, religious, I have all of that stuff, but I have not, no love, I'm nothing. If I sacrifice, give all I possess to the poor, give my body over to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love. I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Paul's holding up a mirror to you and me as we wait for Jesus' return, as we become joyful losers in whatever we face. Our love is supposed to abound more and more in depth of insight He's talking about the kind of love in First Corinthians 13 that we glorify God when we love him this way and we love others. What should you do? Roll over because he wins and we might lose? No, you grow in love. You glorify God by loving and he adds discerning. Verse nine, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound, verse 10, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus, like that you be prepared, ready, that your relationship of love to God and love for other people, there's something about that that grows discernment in you and me. Do we need discernment in this world right now? Discernment is the ability to test reality, reliability and value. It's to be able to test things and see, man, there's so much confusion. Everything's so complicated. Who do you believe? what news do you watch? How do you know what's fact or fiction, what's right and what's wrong in our current culture? There's so much evil, so much good, and so much confusion and everything in between. We desperately need discernment, the ability to test what's reliable, what's right, what's valuable, what's solid, what's good. And there's something about growing in love that Paul says, you grow in love and you'll grow in discernment kind of love in First Corinthians 13. Because when I love God, I also love what God loves. And when I love what God loves, I hate what God hates. There are things that God hates. And my growth in love for him leads me to also hate the things that God hates. And the more I love God, the more I love people. The more I'm patient with people, I'm patient with my spouse. I'm patient with my kids, I'm patient with my coworkers. The more I love God, the more I love people in my neighborhood that are different, that are doing things that are completely in my opinion wrong and simple. The more I love God, the more I grow in love for other people and I'm patient and kind with other people, but I'm also able to discern what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false, what is fact and what is fiction. There's an aspect of growing in love and discernment that allows me to separate and see what is true and lasting and good. This is so hard, and that's why Paul writes this letter, to teach us, to grow us in all of this. Because I look around for me personally this week, I just feel like the biggest loser of a dad I could ever be. I just look at how I'm doing as a father and a husband, and I feel like a complete loser, I'm trying to be healthy physically, and I feel like a complete loser. I look at where I would want to be at 45 years old, what I hope to be like, the kind of man, the kind of community member, the kind of pastor, the kind of person, and I feel like a complete loser. And you may be in that same boat where you're just looking at your life and going, I'm losing everywhere. What do I do? But if Jesus is the last man standing, if God is going to complete what he started, then I can be a joyful loser that trusts God and my pursuit, my focus is I'm going to grow in love and discernment. Instead of fighting, instead of arguing, instead of shaming myself, instead of falling on my sword and rolling over and saying I'm just a loser, I can choose to grow in love and discernment. And that's where my focus can be. God, help me. Yes, I might be a loser, but I don't have anything to prove before you, God. Forgive me. Help me. Grow in me the fruit of the spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and self-control. Grow in me a discerning heart and mind, not so that I condemn other people, so that I know what is true and I walk in the truth. And I will follow you and I will trust you. Last spoiler alert for today. Do you know this summer you're going to lose? Ah, uh, Not the cornhole tournament at July 4th. Yeah, you're going to lose that too. But you're going to lose. Some of you are going to lose your job. Some of you are going to lose a spouse. Some of you are going to lose your kids. Some of you are going to lose your health. Some of you are going to lose, 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 lose. And nobody wants to talk about that. What are you going to do when you lose? I want to trust God when I lose. I want to be joyful when I lose. I want to grow in love and discernment, to be able to see the bigger picture of what's going on. But this is hard, and only with God's help and with the Scripture teaching us together as we march through this, this summer, can we learn these things and grow and be at a place in our lives that whatever happens, we're not a bunch of crybabies. We're not a bunch of crybabies. It doesn't mean we're not going to have real emotion. It doesn't mean we're not going to weep when we lose people and lose dreams and hopes, but we're not going to be sore losers That is not who God designed us to be. We are victorious in Christ. Jesus is the last man standing. God will finish what he started. We have confidence in him. Are you with me? Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for not throwing me away as broken and sinful as I am. I just struggle, God. I struggle. I lose hope. I give in to anxiety and fear. I care way too much of what people think of me. Sometimes with all the change and confusion that's going on with our culture, I'm not sure which way is up and what battles to fight and what battles to let go of. I want to be an agent of truth. I want to be discerning of what is good and what is evil. But all of this is hard. We need your spirit to help us, please guide us. Please lead us. Please, as a church family, help us to be joyful losers, that when we lose, we're joyful, that when we struggle, we don't lose hope that make us active in our communities and in politics and economics and academics. Make us active people. We don't just roll over, but when push comes to shove and when we feel out of control and we feel like we're losing everything, remind us that we have you. And with you, we have fullness of joy. Please help us. In Christ's name, amen.